All right, good morning, everybody. That was super weak. Good morning, everybody. Much better. We're going to have more of that later, just heads up, so be prepared. This thing's wonky again. I'm going to try to deal with it. Um, All right, a couple of things before we get started this morning. First of all, I just want to thank you, Bethany, for that testimony this morning. That's better. Um, I just want to point out, in case case you missed it, um, what we got to celebrate with the Meeks uh, on on Thursday is like the most tangible expression of what it means to be in the body of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. We've talked about the whole last year about the brokenness in our world and Elijah came into their home because of brokenness. But because of the body of Christ, because of people that are willing to be obedient to the word, he doesn't have to live in a broken family. Amen. He gets to live in a family that loves him and that cherishes him. And so please continue to pray for them. This is um, it's just a step in the process, right? Um, it's a significant one, and we want to celebrate that with them. So if you haven't reached out to them yet, just shoot them a text and tell them congrats and let them know you're praying for them. They will very much appreciate it. And, and uh, like all of us that have, have walked through adoption and foster care, we all need it, okay, every day. So thank you all for, for, for those that have, have celebrated with them already. And, and by the way, um, that was a really cool event yesterday at their house. If you, if you missed that, there's some great pictures online. But we did a, a drive-by parade, which was pretty awesome. Um, last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Um, and good news, we're only going to do one verse today. Um, but we're going to spend <laughs> all morning on one verse. We're going to chase some rabbits, and it's going to be good. But I wanted to, to touch back on verse 1 and 2 again, because this is a significant passage, right? Remember that the author of Hebrews in these first four verses is kind of setting the tone for this letter. He is, he's trying to help the church right from the get-go, right? He's getting their attention, and he's speaking something that's powerful. This is a significant passage, but it's particularly significant for us as a gathering place church. Listen to these two verses again, and then I want to I talk about something for a minute. This is Hebrews 1, chapter 1 through 2, or verses 1 through 2. It says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Listen, church, we know we talk about on a regular basis the significance that it holds for us that God would speak into our lives, that God would draw us to himself, and that God draws others in through our lives. That's not a new concept for us. I was talking with someone this week specifically about this, and Through our conversation, I kind of was able to verbalize something that's always been in my mind, but I hadn't really put a finger on necessarily. But it's the idea that when you talk about God speaking, it can feel very subjective, right? For me, I have to think about the meanings of subjective versus objective. Objective is very clearly defined for every person. There's no question. Whereas subjective can be subject to our interpretation, right? And so often hearing from God, for me at least, can seem subjective. And what I mean by that is that God speaks to each of us in different ways. It says that in verse 1 that God has spoken through, and I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up, through many prophets at different times and in different ways. God speaks to each of us differently. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. And the difficulty I think that many people have with this is that there's a trust issue underlying in their spirit. 
and it's not unwarranted. For, for many, many generations, people have used the name of God. They've attached it to a statement that they want other people to gather around and support them. Unfortunately, there are people who throw that phrase around in order to get what they want. They use it to manipulate people or a system for their own benefit. After all, if, if someone says to you, well, God said this to me, how do you respond? Right? I saw a post a while back that um, I made a little over a decade ago. It's when our church was really first discovering what it meant to abide in Christ and to hear his voice. And I said something like this on Facebook, uh, hearing God's voice and doing what he says. Uh, and someone commented and said that a preacher told him once that if you want to hear God speaking, just read the Bible out loud. And then another friend ended the thread by saying, oh, all those poor blind mute people in the world because they can't hear or see God's word. Catch up. All right. The author of Hebrews is reminding the church uh, that God has made it his practice to speak to his people. And God does not change. That means God has made it his practice to speak to us. We see that characteristic proven over and over again in the life of Jesus. In church, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he promised what would come. The Holy Spirit who lives in us, the presence of God in our bodies every day, every moment. God speaks to us. We're going to look at verse 3 today, which is going to address the fact that Jesus is God's Son and the exact representation of God. We'll, we'll look at that in a minute, but for now I want us to settle on this idea that God speaks. He always has and He always will. Now, God speaks directly to all of us through His Spirit, which lives inside of us. And if you are unclear about this or would just like to talk through that process more, please let me know. Because God is very clear in Scripture that He wants us to know Him. And if He was unable to speak, we could not know Him. He is a living God who lives inside of His people, and He wants us to be able to commune with Him. I wanted to remind you that today as we move forward. And I also want to remind you what God showed us last week, that often when we're walking with Jesus and we talk about God speaking into our lives, that there are, are people around us that are hung up in cultural religion that are going to balk at the idea that God is that personal, that God would care about us that much. And we'll address that later today. This is the message that God has given for us to share with one another, to share with others in our lives. And even though we face opposition, we're not alone in that. Jesus and all his followers were constantly faced with people denying the divinity of Jesus. And that's why this next phrase in the opening statement of this book of Hebrews deals specifically with Jesus and his identity and in relation to God. So look at me today. Um, we'll read verse 3 and 4, but we're really going to address just verse 3 today. It said, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand on the majesty of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. The first point I want to make today is that Jesus is God. The word radiance in, this, in verse 3 can also be defined as reflection. For those that were denying that Jesus was the Messiah, we see the argument that not only is He the Son, but He's exactly like God in every way. 
How many of you remember, um, some of you are probably not old enough for this, uh, but raise your hand if your teachers ever used ditto copies in a classroom. They had purple ink. Anybody remember that? Okay. Quick story to help you get this idea in your mind. Not about how a ditto machine works. That's neat in its own right. But I had a friend, we had a, an English teacher when I was in high school, um, and if, imagine a normal classroom size, okay? Now imagine that room with um, every kind of, <laughs> he, he, he made things, he was crafty. There were Tupperware tubs literally to the ceiling in his room, and, and all around all the walls, stuff hanging from the ceilings, and then about 25 chairs in the middle of that, so you sat like this in his room in your chair. It was very hot. A good friend of mine fell asleep in that hot room with his head on his desk with a ditto page on his forehead. And when he woke up from class, he sat up and the page was still there. And when he pulled it off, the ditto copy had transferred to his forehead. Okay? It was an exact copy, an exact image. Listen, if Jesus is the exact image of God, here's the question that I have to ask. Why is it that many struggle or even refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God Himself? Today we're going we're gonna to chase a rabbit trail. We're going to look at one of our cross-references. And as we look at that, we're going to say, okay, what does that even mean? And so we're going to look at another, and we're going to follow some Scripture down this, down this trail and discover what Jesus is trying, or what the author of Hebrews is trying to share with us. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, it says, Some are blinded by the God of this age. But who or what is that? We know it's not Yahweh because it's a little g in Scripture. So let's follow the cross-reference from 2 Corinthians 4.4, where the same phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture. Look with me at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Now he, it's talking about Jesus, said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager uh, was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. We see in this parable that Jesus is describing a man who's about to lose his job for being irresponsible. And rather than being honest about his performance, he chooses to continue down the same path which is the reason for him being fired, for being letting go from that management position. And then ironically, the boss in this story praises him because it said he acted shrewdly. Now that's not a word that I use regularly. I don't know about you if that comes up in your normal vocabulary. But it means to show sharp powers of judgment or to be piercingly cold. 
This parable is the lead-in into Jesus' teaching about our inability to serve two masters. We can serve God or we can serve money, but not both. And Jesus is making a clear distinction that those that are controlled by the earthly pursuits versus those that are motivated by the love of God. Now let's run this backwards to where we began. The of this age is the same phrasing in the 2 Corinthians passage and in Luke. Both passages are describing people that are ruled by the passions of this world. Look at verse 4 in, chapter, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 4. It says, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the question we started this little rabbit trail on was, why is it that some people struggle to believe? And the answer is that we are blinded by all the things that the world has to offer. We are born thinking of ourselves, and that trend continues in our lives until Jesus shows us that there is someone who is greater than we are. By telling our stories of what God is doing in our lives, we're helping other people to see the bigness of God. We see God's greatness in our own lives. We see Jesus reign over all the things in our lives that seem insurmountable. And Jesus goes, no big deal. I got it. The second point that the author makes in verse 3 is that Jesus sustains all things. It was a common Jewish belief that God held the whole world in his hand. Y'all remember that song? He's got the whole, I'm not going to sing for you. That's somebody else's job. He held the whole world in the cup of his hands. I didn't know that until I was studying this week, and now that song makes more sense. But consider what this is telling us about how great God is, how big God is. I don't know if this is just a country boy thing or if it's something everybody does, but have you ever tried to drink from your hands? Anybody? You, you get water, whether it's a water trough, mud puddle, sink faucet, because you don't have a cup. How many cupfuls does it take to satisfy, when you're that thirsty, how many cupfuls does it take to satisfy that thirst? Quite a few, right? Here's what I want you to do. Cup your hands together. Look at them. Everybody, put your hands just like this. Look at them. Now keep looking at your hands. I want to read the words of the prophet of Isaiah. And think about the size of your hands. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon's cedars are not enough for fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are considered by him as empty nothingness. With whom do you compare God? What likeness will you step up for comparison with him? An idol? Something a smelter cast and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? 
God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number. He calls them by name because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. Church, God is much bigger than we can even imagine. Much bigger. Y'all know I'm a space geek. And to think that God not only knows the number of the stars, but also their names and can call them out is incomprehensible to me. To think that all that we can see in the skies, he tosses out like a tablecloth, is incredible. Absolutely incredible. This is a great way for us to try to quantify his majesty, but it still falls short. Another way that we get to see his might is through his sustaining work in our lives. Why is it important to share our stories? Because it helps people to see who God is, how great God is. Listen, church, say amen if you've experienced God's sustaining activity in your life. Amen. All right? What about if God has carried you through sickness? Can you say amen? amen? If you've walked through job issues and God sustained you, if God has comforted you through loss, if God has showed you His mercy and His grace, We have so many things that God is doing in our lives. Thank you. We have so many things that God's doing. Testi testimony from the children. Right? We do. That's why we have this moment. It's so that we can testify to one another the greatness of who God is. That, that He isn't just... An ambivalent God that's in the sky somewhere who doesn't care for his people. But he knows us. The next point that, he, that the author makes is that Jesus sacrificed himself on our behalf. Jesus, God made flesh, who came to live as we cannot, to be the sacrifice that is required in order for us to be made right with God. Look at verse 3 again says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus made us pure by living the life, by living the perfect life and giving himself up to death on a cross. The author here is pointing us back to the Mosaic Law. Remember when we studied the book of Exodus, remember the Big Ten on Mount Sinai where God gives Moses the law and he brings it down to the people? If you'll remember from that study, God gave the Hebrew people that law to set them apart. The law in itself had no power to, to make the people better, but simply to point out that there was a need for them to be better than they were. It was to point to their need for a God. It had no power to purify anyone. All it could do was show that they were unclean. 
If you read through Numbers, Leviticus, or Chronicles, you see all the rituals that were put in place in order for people that were unclean to be made clean so that they could be before the presence of God. Sacrifice needed to happen. It had to be made. Blood had to be shed in order to atone for the sin of the people. For generations, this process went on and on. But like so many other things in our lives, when we continue to do things over and over and over again, our brains just go into autopilot and they lose their meaning and they lose their message. God's plan was to send Jesus to be the final sacrifice. His death and the shedding of His blood would cover all people. This was necessary so that we could be forgiven. This was such a big deal. Jesus' sacrifice had been prophesied by the prophet Isaiah nearly 700 years prior to his death. Look with me at Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 9. It says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Listen, the author is making this connection in his opening statement in the book of Hebrews. He is connecting the life of Jesus, the man that lived, the man that died, the man that rose again. He is making a connection for the church to all that had been prophesied hundreds of years before, this promise that God had made The author is saying, it has been fulfilled. The thing we've been waiting for has arrived. His purpose was to draw the attention of those that were listening to the fact that God had long ago promised that Jesus would come. And the last point that he makes in this verse is that Jesus sits on his throne in heaven. Psalm 33, 6 says, The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. Bear with me a moment. I just realized that my file didn't update. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This passage from Psalms is used or alluded to 21 times in the New Testament. It supports Jesus' Messiahship, vindication through resurrection and exaltation, role as judge, lordship, and his intercession on behalf of believers. I want you to think about for a moment how big a deal this is. About how big a deal it is that Jesus sits on the throne at the right hand of God. For me, it's not something I consider often. We testify 
of the work of Jesus in our lives, right? That's what we do. We talk about the things that God is doing in our lives. The one who holds all of creation in the cup of his hands is personal enough that he knows the insignificant troubles that I have in my life and in yours. He holds our lives as significant. He regards us as worthy of being loved. We are so significant that Jesus gave up his seat in heaven to come to earth, to live as man, to suffer as we suffer, to die a gruesome death, and then to raise himself to life again. All of this so that he could fix the brokenness that we brought into the world. Not him. God loves us, church. Jesus loves us so much that he gave up everything for us. After giving all, he was raised back up and placed on his throne in heaven. Jesus sits in the place of honor because he is worthy of all honor. What a great testimony with that song this morning that he is worthy. He accomplishes what we cannot. He loves as we cannot love. I want to close this morning with this passage from Colossians that echoes this same message from verse 3. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Jesus is God the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. He gave up all so that he could save us from ourselves. He has been raised again to his place of honor. These stories of his work in our lives are a testimony to the greatness of who God is. He did all of this because he loves us. Church, there are people in your lives, and maybe it's you, who've never experienced that love of Christ before. And if you have not, please come talk to me or talk to one of the other elders. But keep in mind that there are people all around you every day who do not know what you know. They don't. When we read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, we go, yeah. But there are people all around you every day who go, what? No, there's no way God could love me like that. Church, we have a story to share, and it's a story about a huge God that loves big. And the way that we talk, the way that we live our lives are testimony of who He is and how much He loves us. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful and so indebted to You. There is nothing that we could ever say or do that could even begin to be enough to say thank you. Father, we love you. 
And we want other people to know you. God, often we stumble and we fall. But God, I ask that when we do, that you would just pick us right back up. Remind us that you love us. Forgive us for our mistakes. And send us back out into the world with the knowledge and the understanding that you have given us your all. You have given us grace. You have given us mercy so that your love might be shown to the world through us. God, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for your mercy that is new every morning, every moment. Jesus, we love you. Amen.